we might call it a subset of the book of Judges, which precedes the book of Ruth, right? Judges. How could we summarize the book of Judges? A train wreck. Confusion. Selfishness. Sinfulness. Apostasy. The book of Judges is one of the bleakest books in the Bible. Because it's summarized, we talked about this last week, with the the summary statement, there was no king in Israel. And everybody did that which was right in their own eyes. Oh yeah, the me generation is not a new generation, friends. It's been alive and kicking for a long time. And everybody's standard of what was right was themselves, and it was a mess. And, And so we have the book of Ruth that comes after Judges, And there's such a contrast. Because the book of Ruth, this is a history that happens during the time of Judges. And instead of confusion and darkness, this is actually a window of hope, of faithfulness, of God's grace, of God's purposes. And this is so important for us to understand that in spite of how dark it is today, We look around and we can think, what is the use? Well, friends, God is at work. And yet, at this point in the story, this doesn't look like a story of hope. It looks very bleak. There's very little hope. I said this last week. I said it again. Perhaps your life today feels like this. Maybe hopeless, maybe crushed, Maybe just utterly broken. Because we do live in an age of confusion, of selfishness, of apostasy, and sin. But friends, this is not the whole story. You see, your life is a subset in a greater story, just like the book of Ruth. And God wants you, wants your life to be a thread in a magnificent tapestry of his grace and goodness. This is, this is our God, and this is his power. And we're going to take a look a little closer at how this began and maybe just to back up. We began exploring this book of Ruth together last week. And To say that this is an oasis of hope, you might say to me, well, Joe, do you have the right book? Because remember last week, we read about a family that in spite of the time of Judges, or in the spirit of the time of Judges, they too, they did what was right in their own eyes. That is, they left Israel. They moved away from Israel to a foreign land. And then the father dies. So the mom is left with her two sons, The two sons marry, but they're in a foreign land, so they marry Moabite wives, which the law forbids. In the course of time, the one son dies, then the other son dies. And so the book, the story that we have before us is is Naomi, the mother, now a widow, 
with her two Moabite daughter-in-laws. And where we left off last week, Naomi said to her daughter-in-laws, Look, I'm going back to Israel. You, you go back to your people. Yeah, this story sounds like it's just brimming with hope, doesn't it? And we ended this our time last week at this very difficult juncture because Naomi has blessed her two daughter-in-laws. She tells them to go back to their families. And the next text says that they wept. They, they hugged. They kiss each other. And they shed tears. Does somebody crying make you uncomfortable? Because if it does, I mean, you ever think of those? Why do people tend to apologize if they cry? If they start crying? Because if crying makes you uncomfortable, the scene here in Ruth will really disturb you. And it should. Because the word here, wept, is more aptly translated wailed. You may think, well, these are women. Women cry. And we say that and think that like it's a fault or like it's a weakness. I ask you, and I ask specifically the brothers here, who is weak? The one who cries, who who lets it out, or the one who is in control, stoic and strong? Was was Abraham was Abraham weak when he stood at the, the, the tomb of Sarah, his wife? And wailed out loud and cried? It was Joseph unmanly when he wailed in response to seeing his brother Benjamin? Was it weakness when when Joseph openly wails before his brothers, when when he, he finally tells them who he is? I mean, do you realize that approximately one third of the Bible's songbook, the book of Psalms, are psalms of lament. They're songs of heaviness. They're songs of people who are disturbed. They're songs of people that are saying, look, my circumstances are are way out of my control. How about David? How about Jeremiah, who we call the weeping prophet? Were these men weak or are they pictures of another who would come a man of sorrows acquainted with grief was there anything unmanly about Jesus when he wept at the grave of Lazarus you know, the, the Finnish people, I'm told, have, have like 40 different words to describe snow. Wow. 
And it makes sense, right? Because they have a lot of snow. They have a lot of contact with it. They're very familiar with it. And, and the Hebrew language kind of reflects this when it comes to sorrow. There's a lot of Hebrew words that, that nuance that give this idea of describing sorrow. And it's a very, very often repeated topic in Scripture. And yet in our modern world, we're very slow. And we're very ill-equipped to express sorrow. It's often viewed as weakness. In fact, do you realize it's actually a very worldly and ancient ideology? Going way back to the times of the ancient Greeks, the, the Stoics. The Stoics, and this is the idea that, that we, we, we keep a stiff upper lip. We be, can I say, logum with our emotions. See, this is what man's wisdom says, but it's not God's. To be self-controlled is not to have no emotion. It is to have emotion and yet be anchored to truth. And many have concluded that women are weak because of their emotions. Well, maybe we have this thing completely upside down. By the way, one more thing to chew on as long as I'm on a rabbit trail. Jesus wept at Lazarus' grave, right? We remember that. That is, that is in the Greek, it says he cried. He cried over the sorrow of death and the pain that death causes. But you remember, there's a second time it mentions in Scripture that Jesus cried. It's when he, right before the crucifixion, when he looked over Jerusalem. And it says that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. But the word there is not weep, he cried. The word there is wailed. He wailed. Wailing is when we are so grieved, no words will come out. Only wordless agony. And so here we are, Ruth chapter 1, we have Naomi with a broken and empty heart is sending her daughter-in-laws back to the families and all of them there are wailing together. They have no words. And that's where we begin our text today. Ruth chapter 1, verse 10. Would you read with me? Ruth chapter 1, verse 10. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of, my, the, hand of the Lord has gone out 
against me. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she, Naomi, said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Well, friends, let's see if we can make some sense out of this passage. And maybe that's a great place to start. What, what do we do anyways? We, we open up the Bible, which I hope you do on a regular basis, because we go to God's word to feed our souls, right? We go to God's word because God promises. He says his word, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God commands, he says, let the word of God dwell in you richly. God's word is a foundation for us. But, but if, if we are to come on our own to the Bible, a passage like Ruth, what do we do? How do we spend time here so we can actually get something out of it? Well, friends, let me just quickly walk with you what I do. Very basically, we begin to understand the word of God by making observations. Answering the very, very simple question, what does it say? Now, it's easy to kind of fly past this. So let, me, let me give you seven observations real quick from this passage. They're very obvious. Number one, the daughter-in-laws want to go with Naomi, verse 10. Number two, Naomi persuades them to not go. Number three, Naomi believes God's hand has gone out against Naomi. Number four, Orpah She changes her mind. Number five, Ruth unconditionally commits herself to Naomi. Number six, Ruth confesses herself to God. And seven, Naomi is bitter. 
Now, there's many, many other observations we could make. We could probably spend the whole morning, but those are seven. Those are significant ones. So we, t- we take these observations and we say, yeah, this is what the scriptures say. And then we, then we consider these observations and then we ask a second question, right? What did these things mean at the time when they were written? This step we could call interpretation. So we make observations first, and then we we try to interpret them. Now, there's a critical mistake that people often make at this point, and this is one that we need to avoid. How many times after reading a Bible verse or have you heard somebody say, or maybe even said it yourself, well, to me, this verse means, and then so forth. How can I say this gently? I won't. What the text means to you, or what the text means to me, does not matter. What we think it means is really irrelevant. Because the Bible is not about my thoughts. The Bible is not about your thoughts. It's about the thoughts of God. And it's very it's a very serious mistake for us to place our thoughts above his thoughts. Any man? Capiche? Understand? Amen? This is very important. So when we come to God's word, we want to ask, God, what, what, is it, what does it mean to these people? Not what do I think it means, what does it mean to me? We can make some quick observations here. I'll go quickly. The daughter-in-laws want to go with Naomi. What that meant is hard for us to understand. This was a one-way ticket, friends. There would be no, no quick trips back to Moab. That was a long way. There was no Facebook. There were no flights. There was no texting. So this decision to go was to go for good. Naomi, number two, persuades them not to go. What is the meaning of this? What is it? Why is Naomi so so set on them not following? It's a little confusing. In short, she's saying, I have no future. My husband is gone. My sons are gone. I'm going to go back and I have nothing. You, you may have a future here in Moab. You could remarry. It won't happen in Israel. But there's something else that Naomi's pointing at in the midst of her words. I don't know if you caught it. What she's talking about, this idea of of her having another son and them marrying, it's, it's kind of... Um, obscure. But Naomi's words are hinting at something. If you you like literature, this we might call an element of foreshadowing, okay? It's a small hint at a future big item. She's referring to what the law describes as the Leverite marriage. You can read more about that in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Basically saying this, it was the duty 
It was the duty of an unwed brother to marry his brother's wife if his brother should die without having children. And Naomi's basically saying, look, there's going to be no brothers coming from me. So there is nothing for you. There is, there is no future. Naomi believes, number, observation number three, that God's hand has gone out against her. Naomi believes her suffering is a punishment. Is that correct? You know, one of the things that we could stop and think about for a moment is what was Naomi's Bible? You see, this is an early book in the Bible. I don't know if you ever thought about this. Naomi didn't have, she couldn't look at the Second Corinthians. She couldn't look at the book of Galatians. She couldn't think about the, the Gospels, could she? She couldn't even think about the Psalms. They hadn't been written yet. Naomi's Bible was a very small Bible, and an application from this, we should be very grateful. She had the five books of the Pentateuch. Maybe Joshua. And maybe perhaps the book of Job. That's it. And she says, the hand of God has gone out against me. Maybe she was thinking about Deuteronomy chapter 32, where God says, If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. Maybe she was thinking about Job chapter 12, where Job says, In his hand, in God's hand, is life. The life of every living thing, the breath of all of mankind. For the life of those she loved most had been taken. But maybe it was perhaps the verse, maybe it was Job chapter 19. Job 19.21 says, Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. You see, that's how Naomi was seeing her situation. How about us? When life takes a sudden and difficult turn, how do you view God? How do you view God? Tragedy strikes. You experience maybe great loss. We go through great pain or great suffering. It's hard for this not to feel like God's hand is against me, isn't it? Don't we have this tendency to feel abandoned? And the voices in our head can cause great confusion. Why am I suffering? What what did I do wrong? Do you ever think, am I being punished? Friends, it's very important for us to understand the difference between punishment and correction. Because God's word makes it very clear that it says, whom the Lord loves, he corrects. No, he says, it feels like God's hand is against me. 
you know, a key question that we can ask as we go through the Old Testament. We stop and we look. We realize that the Old Testament is ultimately, one of the things it's doing is it's pointing towards one who is coming to redeem. It's helpful for us to know, stop, and think for a moment that there was another one who felt utterly abandoned. He sat in a garden, praying, sweat running down his face that turned to blood. And he said, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. He cried out on the cross. We remember Jesus' words, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Naomi in some ways is pointing to this place of hopelessness, but it's not the full story. All suffering is not correction. There's a prayer that we can pray when we suffer. God, remind me of your goodness. It's one of the hardest things for us to see. I I like what one Bible teacher said about this, about Naomi's, Naomi's words, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. David Guzik said this, he said, despite this feeling that God was against her, Naomi is going back to the land of Israel and going back to her God. Though she felt like the hand of the Lord had gone out against me, she did not grow bitter against God. She returned to him in repentance, knowing that the answer is drawing closer to him, not going further from him. Naomi did not accuse God of doing something wrong. It's actually an expression of trust in him. If if Naomi was bitter or angry against God, she would have probably gone another way, further from God in Israel, rather than back. Instead, she shows that she trusted the sovereignty of God and knew that despite of her personal calamities, he is a God, a good God, that blesses. We need to go on. We can talk about all these things. Orpah changing her mind. So much like us. Another question we can ask when we read this, the scriptures is, is what, well, how do I see myself in here? What can I learn about myself? And we, problem, we often have a problem that we kind of put ourselves in the good person seat. Oh, I'm like David, slain giants. I'm like Daniel in the lion's den. Well, oftentimes I think if we're honest... We're a lot more like Orpah. It shows the neediness of the human heart. Orpah, who's like, I'm going to do this. Eh, I think I'm not going to do this. Have you been there? Oh, it's frustrating. I don't like that about myself. This week, I'm working with my neighbor, and I'm thinking, I want to share something about the gospel with him. I want to do this. And then I kind of draw back. Oh, it's so easy for us to, to, to not, not trust God in hard things. Well, there's more that we could say. We're going to go on. Ruth's commitment. 
to herself, to committing herself to Naomi. You know, here we see that Ruth's words reflect her actions. Her words reflect her actions because she is physically clinging to Naomi, and that's just what her words do. You know what it is? It's an expression of her heart. But more than just devotion to Naomi, Ruth's words reflect devotion to God. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. What can we apply? What can we apply from from Ruth's love and devotion? Well, think a little bit about Naomi for a second. She's utterly abandoned. She doesn't have any hope. Her her future, her husband is dead. Her children are dead. In fact, by by Naomi's own confession, she says, God is against me. I'm bitter. How does God respond? How does God respond to Naomi in this moment? He sends Ruth. Friends, one of God's most common methods of communicating his will, his purposes on this earth, is one of the least likely things we would ever think he should use. He uses us. He uses people, broken people, sinful people, people that waver. God uses people. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, these frail, broken vessels that we are. God chooses the foolishness of preaching. So God, in Naomi's extremity, he takes Ruth as an expression of his love. God, all in all his sovereign power and might, often displays himself through very humble means, us. We need to see Ruth's love and faithfulness as a vehicle of God's love and faithfulness. It's not that Ruth was so loving. This is, this is God at work. Naomi said completely at the end of her rope, at the end of herself. And the only thing that she has left is her daughter-in-laws and those she's pushing away. It's actually a bit, an amazing selfless act that she's doing. This is She's experienced the most heart-wrenching love. Expressing it to care for them above caring for herself. And the only thing that she has left, she is giving up. That's love. And it is here that God expresses his love and faithfulness through Ruth. Friends, are you convinced of the love of God? May we hold to that. May we understand that God's mercy, that that is so central, that our theology must start there, that God expresses love to us. We are accepted in the beloved. That is who we are in Jesus. But Ruth's confession is not just to Naomi, it's to God. What words? What words these are. 
Naomi's saying, look, the gods that I used to worship are no longer my gods. In fact, it's not just going to be a mental belief, right? I just have this idea in my head. Actually, because now, now your people are going to be my people. What I believe is going to transform my life. It's going to, it, because that's really what we believe, isn't it? If I say something, I say, I believe this and I live this way, friends, we could probably ask ourselves, do I really believe that? Naomi's, Naomi's demonstrating this. It's such a beautiful expression. What a transformation. It was God's grace at work. Have you been there? Where you look, look, I'm an idolater. But there, there is a God, a sovereign God over the universe, a God, a God who cares, a covenant-loving God who's, who's, who's saying, come to me. All you who are weak and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Trust me, I will take your burden. That is the God who called out to Ruth. Friends, our time's quickly going. Let's stop just one last observation that Naomi is bitter. Now, the interpretation needs needed with Naomi's words in verse 21 is not so much what do they mean. The meaning is very clear. Naomi is is expressing the state of her heart. They're hard words. They fall on us kind of hard. When you read verses 20, and they go, Naomi, it's good to see you. And she replies... Don't call me Naomi. Don't we feel the chill in the air? And I guess one of the hard things that we don't know, what the text doesn't say, is how did Naomi say these words? Was this full of anger and rage? Don't you call me Naomi. Or was it just in brokenness? Don't call me Naomi. Everything is bitter. That's where she's at. I'll tell you what, bitterness, it's worth just taking a minute to talk about. Because all of us have probably been there. I mean, how do we respond to these words, call me bitter? You know, the knee-jerk reaction is to say, oh, oh no, no, no. Uh, don't be bitter. Bitterness is, is not good is the solution that we have for Naomi or for ourselves if we find ourselves bitter is, well, we need to think positive. Think positive thoughts. Bitterness is real. It's it's so descriptive, isn't it? The idea of bitterness, we know what it is. We've experienced it. You know, my my son sent me a video uh, a few months ago of his eight-month-old son. And his eight-month-old son was chewing on a lime. Okay, and he he'd take a bite of the lime and he'd go like that, and then he'd stop for a second, and he'd take another bite of the lime and he'd go like that. And it was really funny. Bitterness is pretty funny when it's with a lime, but in most of our cases, 
Bitterness is the cause of so much hurt, so much brokenness, tragedy. And bitterness may well be a real wrestling. Bitterness over defeat, over disappointment, pain. Can I ask you, do you have bitterness in your heart today? Not, Not in your mouth, but in your heart in your soul. Friend, if you're bitter, do not pretend you're not. Do not just keep a stiff upper lip. Don't pretend. Friend, turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus with your bitterness. An old, beautiful hymn sings the words, I must tell Jesus all of my sorrows. I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my distress, he kindly will help me. Jesus can help me. Jesus alone. Friends, may God help you tell someone else as well. Do you not see this is one of the reasons that God places us in a body? The idea is what God says, if one part is hurting, the other parts should hurt as well. But it is almost impossible for the other parts to hurt if they do not know. But these are hard things to express, aren't they? Who wants to stand up and say, yeah, me, I'm bitter. It takes a measure of humility, doesn't it? May God help this church be a place where we can be real, where we can weep with those who weep, as well as rejoice with those who rejoice. Oh, if Naomi only knew, because of the choices that she was making, God was at work in the background like she could have no idea. That coming through her daughter-in-law and her descendants would come one who would take all the bitterness of this world, the bitterest dregs of sin, and drink them up for us. I know the story ends, it looks kind of bleak, but there's a little hint here at the bottom, the last verse of the page of the chapter 1. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. I know that looks really insignificant, friends. Harvest time means nothing to us, right? We go to the store, it's packed full every day of the week. But if we grew up a thousand years ago, harvest time was that time we are all anticipating. Because our our cupboards get bare before before harvest time. And, And the whole society is hoping and praying that there's no drought. The whole society is hoping and praying there's no swarm of locusts that comes in. We realize how frail and dependent we are because because that, that harvest that is coming is almost there. That's how life used to be. 
It says here that the barley harvest is coming. It's a small sign that there's hope on the horizon. Friends, there is a greater harvest coming than just barley. There's a time coming where there's going to be a great feasting, not because of a barley harvest, because it's going to be a wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb. This book is going to point us to another wedding, which is pointing eventually to that wedding. We close for now. We see Ruth. We see Naomi. We see God at work. People yielding, giving up what they had, trusting God with things that were very, very, very precious to them. But ultimately, finding God faithful, finding that when they had nothing, they could have everything because God was there. May God help us to know that as well. Let's pray.